0: Well, Exodus chapter 10, locusts and darkness. And in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell the hearing of your sons and your sons' sons the mighty things that I have done in Egypt. And my signs, which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So at the end of chapter 9, I'm sure you can't remember. That was a couple of weeks ago now. It ended with um, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. That's the way the chapter ended. But now we start in chapter 10, and it says, evidently, after Pharaoh hardens his heart, God also hardened Pharaoh's heart and that was the last bit of the scene that we didn't see in chapter 9 but now it tells us in chapter 10 so in that situation Pharaoh hardened his heart but now we find out God doubly hardened his heart again we looked at the word hardened there are several three different words Uh, the one mainly uses the word strengthen he strengthened that resolve so you're going to have an unbelieving, hardened heart that won't believe. There, there, there is a point of no return in hardening the heart. And uh, God alone can look on the heart and make that judgment. But once a person is at the point of no return and hardens his heart, then God will use his hardened heart to bring about his own glory for his people. And that's a very hard but heavy truth about the sovereignty of God. So I've done this. And then he says something interesting. This is the first time we see this. The, the, one of the reasons I'm doing this is you're going to have some great stories to tell your kids <laughs> and your grandkids. And, and more importantly than that, this is the foundation of you guys getting to know me now, we've talked about this. If you took everything everybody knew at, by the end of the book of Genesis, you could write it in one paragraph. There was a lot of unique experiences, but as far as systematic theology about who is God and, and what is his nature, they, they really didn't have a, a, lot, a lot of sense of that. Now, God gave them a conscience, And so therefore, they have this sense being made in God's image of right and wrong. But above that specific revelation of God, very little. Then there's 400 years of slavery. So we could basically say whatever was learned by the end of Genesis was probably forgotten before Exodus chapter one or very diminished, not very known very well. So really, they're learning all together for the first time. So he's saying these are the the bedrocks in which to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are being laid. And it's important that you understand a big part of your job is not just to be a witness to this, not to just be one who's going to be giving the oral tradition uh, the oral stories around the campfire of this, but it's to be embedded into your children's hearts that they would know how mighty God is and the things he did in Egypt. Boy, we need to really understand this. This is so important to God. We get into Deuteronomy by chapter six. He He gives us what's called the Shema. Uh, you, you ever see... In the doors of Jewish houses, they have the, the little metal things or plastic little things they put in every, each of the door and the entrances of the house. This is what they write, the Shema, which is uh, Deuteronomy 6 here and, and verses um, 4 and 5 mainly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these things I command you today shall be in your heart. And in verse 7 now, Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way outside the house, when you lie down, whether that's in a bed inside or on the grass on the outside, when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house. There you go, and on your gates. So these things that that God has spoken to you in loving Him and and the truths about God. It's it's when you sit down, when you rise up, when you're inside the house when you're outside the house when you're sitting in a chair when you're walking by the way it's a non-stop you know later in the new testament it makes it very clear the word of god is jesus isn't it and he's the manna <laughs> that we're going to eat and and david said in psalms one to meditate in god's word day and night i know a lot of people that that think the bible says read the bible nowhere does it say in the bible to read the bible it says to meditate, because really, if you look at the last 2,000 years, it's only the last 400 years that people could really have Bibles in their hands, probably in all reasonableness for everybody to have a Bible in their own hand, probably less than 100 years of the 2,000 years. And and so it's not about the reading you know, I got my reading, I read all the scripture, and I forget about what I just read. Or I, I read it, but yet I don't follow it. You no, know, meditating is the idea that you have the concepts, but the concepts are being applied into the life and into the heart. And it's not just a, a legalistic thing I'm doing. It's, it's a relational thing I'm doing. I've learned this about God. This is what he likes. This is what he doesn't like. This is what makes him sad. This is what makes him happy. This is what's pleasing him. And this is what doesn't please him. This is true. But yet the world says it's not true. But I believe God. And, and these things, we walk in this relationship with him. And he says, it's so immersed in you that your kids get immersed and just hanging out with you and being around you in the same way. And in children in, in Psalms 127 are said, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They are, uh, you know, God giving you a great endowment. It's the fruit of the womb. It's a reward. Children are a reward. Boy, you look at the statistics today. Uh, this, this generation... Uh, right now are not going to be having kids. It's it's crazy. Uh, when you look at the statistics, just came out this last week. I'm not going to go into it today, but he says each of those kids is like an arrow for you later on in life, <laughs> and you're able to shoot them. Uh, I, I love it. I have a friend, Mike Booker. You guys know him. He has 14 kids, and he said, it's awesome. I have one kid. He's a missionary over in that continent. I got another kid. He's a missionary on it. I got another kid who started church over to this city. He, he's got, he's got all kinds of quivers or all kinds of arrows in his quiver. And, it, you know, and he says, well, how many arrows is in a quiver? It's like, how many arrows do you like to shoot? You know, it's really up to you. But it's a blessing from the Lord and you won't be ashamed. And then um, in Proverbs 4 talks about how we as kids, Solomon to David, King David, and Solomon to Bathsheba, his mom. It's a real cool insight to how the home was at that time. We know with David's first children, his family was very dysfunctional. He was very dysfunctional. You know, he was in warrior mode, and and that's about all he could think was, you know, fighting battles and killing people and getting lands. And and at home, things were a mess. He had several wives and kids from the several wives. And but it seems like the time Solomon comes along, it, it's it's something very very different. David figured it out, and and David told him, "Listen to my instructions. Be attentive to everything I'm telling you. Listen to your mother." Uh, he also says, "and and put these things deep into your heart. That wisdom will." Uh, protect you and keep you throughout your life. And, of course, Solomon became the wisest man that ever lived. In Proverbs 20, verse 7, it says, The righteous who walk in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. So, uh, you know, much of the most important truths are caught, not taught. You know, it's something that you have seen applied in so many situations, that it's an involuntary muscle for you. It was so hard of a character growing thing with your parents, but they learned it and then they kept walking that character. For you, that's all you know. You don't know anything different. And it's such an established trait in you, such an established pattern in you um, that you couldn't do anything otherwise. And of course, Proverbs 22, 6, a great, wonderful, blessed verse. Train up a child, in the way you should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And again, Proverbs are, are saying the general truths. Not, they're not always truths. they an exception to every rule. So it's, this isn't a promise of God saying you raise up a child the way they're gonna go. They're gonna continue to walk even if they walk away from it for a while. No, I, I don't think so. But typically, most of the time, It is true, but everybody has to submit to God individually. God has no grandchildren, right? Only children. And of course, in Ephesians 6, 4, it tells dads to bring up your children in the discipline or the characteristics and the instruction of the Lord. And of course, John writes it about his spiritual children, but how much more true it is of our own children. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That is a joyful, joyful thing. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I realized it very early on when my kids were young. It's like heaven isn't going to be that heavenly for me if my kids aren't there. Boy, it caused me to pray for him to say, God, whatever it takes. Guide me, direct me, dry, you know, take away, add to whatever you need to do, but, but help my kids to, to listen to you and follow you into their adult life. Well, in, in verse three now, so Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, if you go back and count up how many times Moses has said that, this is the seventh and final time that he says, let my people go, that they might serve me. But anyway, in verse four, or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I'll bring locusts into your territory. So here, once again, he's given Pharaoh a warning and, and saying, you, you obey God or there's consequences. And I, I like that so much better than saying punishment. Because if he doesn't, Listen, this is what's going to happen. This is the consequence of not submitting and obeying to God. So really, in essence, he's bringing the locus on himself, isn't he? I mean, I could do an explanation to say that God doesn't send anybody to hell, but everybody sends themselves to hell. Because the truth of God has been known and spread throughout the whole world. And men do choose darkness rather than light because they love the darkness and they love the ways of evil and don't want to turn to the light. Well, this is what's going to happen if you don't. And in verse 5, so they shall cover the face of the earth that no one shall be able to see the earth and they shall eat the residue of uh, what is left and which remains to you from the hell and they shall eat every tree which grows up for you. Out of the field. So he says there's not a whole lot to eat. (laughs) After the damage of the the hell and the thunder and the lightning, and as you remember the last couple of pestilence, uh, there's not a lot to eat, but whatever is left, it's not going to be anything left when they're done. And they shall fill your houses, the houses of your servants, the houses of the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have been since the day that they were on the earth to this day. Wow. And he turned him, went out from Pharaoh. So he says, hey, to this point, God's been playing with a softball. <laughs> as hard as these plagues have been, this time it's gonna really hurt. The locust is, we're not playing softball anymore. This, this is the real deal. And I'm just telling you right now that the devastation you experienced with the first seven plagues are gonna be nothing compared to this one. And I just encourage you right now to don't let it happen by you humbling yourself and, and uh, obeying God and recognizing him as God. These are not your people, they're his people. And uh, they are called to not worship you as Ra, the sun God, or any other God other than me. And notice this time in verse seven, Pharaoh's servant said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. <laughs> Do not uh, yet know that the Egyptian is destroyed. So he, they're saying it's plain out he, that he is God. I mean, they're, they're not even questioning. Before, it was, who is this God? We know all the gods. That God's not known, then, then he's, he's not a God that I should have to know. Because I we all the important gods we know and we worship them. And if we don't know him, then he's not an important God. And if he's a, a God who cares about you, then why are you slaves in Egypt? And if he's really God, then why are you guys so poor and slaves and you're, we're so rich and powerful? And, 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 his, and his heart was full of pride in these things. But this time the guys are saying that they may go serve, not their supposed God, but go serve the Lord, Yah, Yahweh, Elohim, let them go serve God. They are recognizing this. But in verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, okay, it looks like they are making some progress here. Yep, yeah, go, go serve the Lord your God. I mean, this, everybody's putting pressure on Pharaoh. Pharaoh, things are really bad in their country. And he says, okay, but, okay, before I say go, let me just ask this question. Now, when you, I say go, who, who exactly are the ones going? So he's got this thing stuck in his craw, right? He just can't say go. He's, he's having to try to figure out um, some way to have some control. Because God is saying, you're not in control. You have no control. I'm God. You're not God, Pharaoh. Even though everybody worshiped him as God, you're not God. And Pharaoh is saying, I'll let you go, but there's got to be some way I have control. I'm letting you go, but I also have a control of them going and coming back. So who is it? And Moses said, we will go with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters and with our flocks and with our herds. We will go for we must hold a feast to the Lord God. This is where we got to get to heaven and watch the video. I mean, as Moses here um, sort of seen through what Pharaoh's getting ready to say, he's been around him now maybe for several months going, oh, I think I know what he's going to say next. And so he just starts laying it out. Or was he was he irritated? You know, we've told you everything's going. And he starts breaking it down for him. I, I, I don't know. We we don't know the inflections of the voice. We just read the the letter. Re, read the words here. But then he, verse ten. Pharaoh said to them, "The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you." <laughs> so Pharaoh is like trying to be above the situation and and he basically says, yeah, if I let you and the little ones go, I, I know you're full of evil and you're going to take advantage of this and you're lying to me and you're, you, you know, evil's planned if I let you take the little ones. So not so. Go now, you who are men and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So what I'm trying to say is I think the original time when you came and talked to me a few weeks ago, a few months ago, we don't know how long it's been. When you said let's go worship, I, I think you, but we both understood you were just talking about the men going out and, and uh, spending three days, you know, packing a light, um, light, light little uh, suitcase and, and a few snacks. And, and you guys are going to go do this little thing and come back. But now it's it's you know getting into this big thing. So let's let's talk about this. Let's go back to that original plan. Just you, men, and a few snacks and a light bag, and and you guys go do your thing. But everybody else because everything else has got to stay back. So once again, he's trying to bargain with God. Do you remember earlier in chapter eight? verse 25 to 27, he says, yes, you can all go, but you got to remain here in Egypt. Don't leave the country. That didn't didn't work with God. And then he tries another bargain where he says, okay, you can leave Egypt, but don't go very far, he says in chapter 8, verse 28. And now he's like, yes, you can go out of Egypt. You can go as far as you want, but the women and the children have to be left behind. You can have I've got to have control of the situation. If the women and children are here, you'll come back. And I know I have control over the situation by them being here, sort of held hostage, if you would, uh, to bring you back. And God is saying, no. The, the point is, is that your heart has to come to completely surrender and say and understand there is no other God before the true and living God, there is only one God. And all these other gods are demons and liars. And, and it's demonic that you worship them and the ways you worship them. So uh, it's interesting today because sort of the opposite, Satan's sort of done the opposite. He's like, okay, I'll let you guys go to church, but the men have to stay home. Only the women and the children can come to church. And that's basically what's happening. It's like, yeah, okay, that sounds fair. I mean, we should stay home and watch football. And, uh, you know, uh, that's pleasing to the Lord to to let the men stay home. Boy, it's a sad thing. But, boy, when we come to the New Testament, it's God's desire that men would be the spiritual leaders and not the women. And and Paul even goes back and says that's what happened with Eve. She she tried to be the spiritual leader uh, in their relationship, and that's how sin came into the world. That's uh, it's how important it is that men lead uh, in worship. Well, Pharaoh still doesn't understand who the Lord really is. He's still trying to answer that question of, of Exodus 5. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? The fact is still there. There is no submission in Pharaoh's heart He doesn't realize who God is and he cannot submit to this unknown God to him. Thus far, God has demonstrated that he is greater than the God Kanum, the guardian of the Nile. He's greater than the God Happy, the spirit of the Nile. He is greater than the God Osiris, who is uh, the the bloodstream of the Nile, was in his blood. Uh, The goddess uh, Hecht, the frog god, the goddess of fertility, or the goddess of um, Hathor, the cow god, the, which is really the, the mother god, the mother goddess, or Ihatib, the god of medicine, or Nut, the sky goddess. And then by the end of this chapter, he's going to devastate the last two of them, really. The god Set, who is the protector of the crops. This is happening with the locusts right now. And then he's gonna destroy the God Ra, the greatest God. He believed he was that he himself was the embodiment of this God, this, this sun God. He's gonna wipe both of those out right now. So you would think of, of where things are spiritually in Egypt. We saw earlier where the gnats and the bugs Caused there to be bites all over the bodies, making the priest impure. They couldn't have one cut, one scratch on them. This is why most of them had all the hair on their body cut off. They were bald and all of this, as they had to be completely pure to be a priest. And thus, their temples, the thousands of Egyptian temples now, probably, my guess, for months, have been empty people are unclean. The priests are unclean. Nobody's nobody's clean enough to go open them or definitely to present some kind of sacrifice or some worship. So everything's in halt, okay? So nobody's worshiping these gods. But one by one, these gods are completely impotent from standing against the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These other gods have zero power before him. They may have some power before men. Their trickery before men is enough to deceive them. But when God comes, it is overwhelming to them. So there is no bargain. God's not going to bargain with Pharaoh. So here comes the locusts in verse 12 through 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hell has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night when it was morning an east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, there had been so much such locusts as they, nor, were, nor shall there be such after them. So there's a lot on locusts. You can go to YouTube and look at it. You can, you can Google it. And there's a lot of locusts that have happened even in the last year. I mean, you can see pictures of it. And it literally makes the day like night. And these things are everywhere. And, and uh, if you look at how they actually do it, they land and they, they lay eggs and, and the, the parents fly off. But then all the babies hatch, which is far more than that was there before. And they come out and they start eating everything and growing. So you just have this several waves of it. You can read all about that. But here he's saying, this is like nothing that man has ever seen since this day. And boy, I'll tell you, we've seen devastating locusts for they cover the face of the whole earth and so that the land was darkened and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hell had left so there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field with throughout all the land of Egypt they don't get a lot of rain there in Egypt and so what little green they had was hard to come by Um, it's mostly desert and sand And so, to have no greenery whatsoever makes uh, their desert experience doubly hard on them. Of course, they they've lost now; everything has been ate away. Later on, locusts will be a a big issue uh, with the children of Israel, and God bringing that punishment upon them, and then all the way into the tribulation period, locusts are there once again, causing havoc on the earth. Well, in verse sixteen, now to verse twenty, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, "I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that He may take away from me this death only." So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. You ever notice this? Each time, would entreat the Lord for me. Moses like, okay, you know, let's. Uh, I'll get around to it, you know. No, Moses, every single time, Pharaoh repents. I I think he probably knew it was a false repentance. But he immediately goes out and prays. Each time, it's it's an immediate receiving of his repentance. Just like when David says to Nathan, uh, after the sin of Bathsheba and his baby died and everything, he said, I have sinned. And in the same verse, Nathan says, you've also been forgiven. There's not a second of time, or like the prodigal, as soon as he sees the sun, right? The big hug and the robe and the ring on the finger and the sandals, immediate. And Moses, each time, immediately goes out and he treats the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. Wow, immediately. Again, the hand of God. These things are everywhere, destroying everything. It's like nighttime during the day. When you look at the ground, you see nothing but black. And then Moses goes out and speaks, and immediately, whew, this wind, I can't see anything, the wind. And then I look again, not one locust. moments later, maybe one minute later, I don't know how long it took. But verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. So God knew this wasn't a true repentance. He, he acknowledged this repentance. He acted on this repentance. But he also knew as soon as the pain stopped, as soon as the locusts were gone, he knew there was no submission in Pharaoh's heart. But this time, interesting There's not a, it doesn't say, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then God hardened his heart afterwards. This time, God immediately just jumps right in and says, and God hardened his heart. And Pharaoh didn't even have a chance to harden his own heart. I'm sure he did after God hardened his heart. But interesting there that this happens immediately. Cole, in his commentary, says, once again comes the easy confession of sin and the shallow repentance that springs only from a desire to avert the consequences. <laughs> I was doing a rescue mission in San Diego a few times and I would preach and, and you know we'd preach for 20, 30 minutes and then we'd give a, a message. And I did this a few times and I noticed there was always the handful of guys that would always come forward to repent and to pray. And of course, about after the fourth time, I realized by them being down front and talking with us for a moment, they were at the front of the line for lunch. (laughs) So again, what looks like repentance to us uh, sometimes has zero repentance in the heart. It's just a conniving to get a better situation or get out of their situation but as soon as their situation's over, they they did. There was not even a tiny morsel of desiring to serve and honor and uh, and obey the Lord whatsoever. Well, verse twenty one. Now, there's no warning on this. So remember, he said, "Hey, if you repent, don't let people go." Then, in a day or so, locusts are going to come. No, not happen. He just immediately, God hardens his heart, and immediately. The Lord said to Moses in verse 21, Stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But, all the children of Israel had light in their dwelling. So right away, this this doesn't seem like regular darkness. Now, I have seen regular darkness, and you can almost describe it this way. I, I went down in the Mammoth Caves in Kentucky, and we went way down in, and the guy said, okay, everybody, over your watches, everything, let there be no light. And we went into the next room, and it was black. I mean, you could not see your hand in front of your face you you didn't even though you knew somebody was next to you you, you had no uh, ability to even see any part of them and then he got a match and he lit one match and we were in this huge hall we'd been in these little tunnels and i you you were thinking you know you walked a few steps forward he's like everybody you know make don't do anything and everybody take five steps forward. And we all did, and we were in this massive, and we're, I don't know, five stories down into the earth at this point, but, and you could see so clearly from that one match, but I've been in the mountains when there's no moon, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's very, very dark, and it seems, it seems that it's far more than just a physical darkness, like in Genesis one, when God separated the light. From the darkness. It was not just, uh, seemed like a creation of the physical realm, but also of the spiritual realm. And I, I don't know one commentary that doesn't point that out. And, and like in 1 John, it says, God is light, right? In 1 John 1 5, and in him there's no darkness at all. So it seems to be God saying, I'm going to just take my presence out of there. You know, this is the one thing that I, 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 as I look at the rapture of the church, and we're going to be looking at it pretty soon here once again in, in First Thessalonians, but I think the major first sensation to those who are left on the earth, it says that which is restraining is taken out of the way. And when there really isn't any pushback from Christians or the spirit of a Christian in this world. And it's everybody pushing to want to be evil, pushing to want to dishonor God, pushing to not re- uh, submit to God, to rebel to God. And and we, in one way or another, are pushing back. You know, I know Satan for decades did everything he could to get the cross off of, off of Mount Soledad there in San Diego. But I've talked to Calvary pastors, I mean they have a cross on a hill out in the middle of nowhere. And it's a tiny little cross. And you got the ACLU out there throwing as much money as they need to get that cross off that hill. I mean, that's how much Satan hates that. that he's filling the resistance from two pieces of wood on a tiny hill out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, somebody probably sees it once or twice a year, if even that, but he wants it taken down. Well, imagine now if a cross, if a church building is pushing back. What are you living next to people in your neighborhood? What kind of presence are we pushing back, whether they know it or not? And so it it, it appears that that thing they're filling is a world where God's presence, any amount of God's light is gone. And it appears that, you know, the matches won't work. God didn't let the matches work. He didn't let them start a fire. That doesn't work. The candles won't burn. It, there's no, no human um, ingenuity will, will allow light to come. No human efforts. And again, when God separated the light from the darkness, there's a sense that there's two, a divide and there's two separate things. And it appears here with no presence of God, no light burns, not even a candle or a flashlight, which is gonna be interesting again in the tribulation period because we, we see them without cars and planes. <laughs> it, it, they're, right, they're all the way back to swords and spears again when we look at the battles during the tribulation period, which is an interesting thing, but they could fill it. And there was three days they were stuck. You think they just peed and pooped their pants? I, I think they pretty much had to. I mean, they, the kids are crying and they can't do anything about it. They're all hungry. The baby's screaming. And, uh, you know, the animals, uh, they're just stuck. They're just pinned down. They can't, the 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 filling, of this darkness is, is so thick that they, they, they're they paralyzed in this darkness. But yet, if they could see it, they can't. But the children of Israel had were not affected in the slightest. They had plenty of light. So this darkness was only upon those who were resisting the submission to God. Those who are submitting to God have the light. Well, in verse 24 now, verse 26. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back, and let your little ones also go with you. So it doesn't seem that it doesn't appear there's a point where Moses goes out and said, Okay, let, let there be light now. After three days, the sun came up. And they had light. And it's like, whoa, we have light again. And immediately, when he gets some light, he goes, to, he goes right to Moses. Okay, go serve the Lord your God. Only, here it is again, giving him a stipulation, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. So everybody can go, but just your animals. Of course, now they're feeling pretty poor in Egypt. They've lost all their crops. They've lost most of their animals. And, um, and so they, they sort of want to hang on to those animals that the slaves have. And, but now he's saying, nope, let me keep the, the your wealth, your possessions. And Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. When I read that, Second part of verse 26, not a hoof shall lift behind. It just rejoices my heart. As a very young man uh, reading one of Spurgeon's sermons, no hoof shall be left behind. And it was just penetrated my heart. But his sermon was that the, the regenerated heart doesn't want, you know, one little hoof our one little horseshoe left behind. Everything's going. Everything's going out because we don't know what the Lord's going to desire in the future. So we're giving him everything. We're bringing everything to him and maybe he wants everything. And so we're going to give him everything. Satan, your man, sometimes parents. I've, As a youth pastor, I had parents that were like, man, my kid doesn't do anything We read the Bible and pray and go to Bible studies. He's not normal, you know? I wish he'd go out and smoke a little dope or something and get in trouble, you know? Just unregenerated mind. And so people are that way. Okay, I, I remember as a young pastor, not pastoring very long, there was this book that was going around the police department and it was some romance novel, but it was two police officers and I guess it was sort of based on a true story of where this woman who has this great relationship with her husband and, and with their kids and she gets involved in religion and basically the story develops how her belief in God destroyed their marriage and destroyed their health and their finances. And, and it was basically a warning to police officers, don't let your wife become a Christian fanatic. And I had uh, some families come to Christ who were, police officers' wives, and they're like going, my husband gave me this book, wanted me to read it. They gave me to read it. You could just feel it. I mean, it was just demonic, was just touching that thing. But basically, it was one of those things, you know, hey, go ahead, you go, but don't go too far. Don't leave Egypt. <laughs> if you leave Egypt, just don't go very far. Don't take your kids with you. Uh, you know, don't don't take the women or the men with you. Don't Don't take your animals with you. Don't, don't bring the kids along. Let them decide what they want to do. Kids, uh, you can stay home, sleep in, eat donuts, and watch TV, or you can go to church with mom. What do you want to do? Just demonic. And, and here, each time, there's no compromise. Not, he finally tells him, there is no bargaining with God. Not even a hoof. Is going to get left behind. This is the final attempt for him to bargain or get God to compromise on this. Not a hoof shall left behind. I think of that hymn, all to Jesus, I surrender. Not a hoof shall be left behind. That's the heart of the believer. And then in verse 27 here, the verse 29, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to them, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. So really, you know, we we have these things that we, you know, tradition, where they call them the 10 plagues. I don't even know if they're really plagues. I, I think it's probably better the 10 judgments. But really, when you look at it, I don't think there's even 10 of them. Okay, I mean, I think there were the nine gods, false gods of Egypt that God was judging. But that's over now. The next thing is going to be recognizing, basically, the Messiah (laughs) as God as the Messiah. And if you won't look to the Messiah, whether you are a Jew or an Egyptian, it doesn't matter, right? If a Jew did not put the blood on the doorpost, he would lose his child as well, right? Or an Egyptian or whoever else was in that country, of whatever nationality they were. And, and let's not forget that there was a lot of half-hearted Jews that left that were killed along the way. And there's a lot of Egyptians in other countries that do make it into the promised land, or at least their kids do at a, at a later date. So what have we really looked at through this part up to this point? Why are these plagues or these judgments coming? First of all, to answer Pharaoh's original question in Exodus five, who is the Lord? Secondly, God showed himself greater than any of these false gods of Egypt. He also showed the power of God through Moses. Also to give the testimony uh, to the children of Israel of the fu- and to their future generations, this is foundational doctrine, so to speak. And then to judge the false gods, the demons, and then to warn the nations. Years and years later, the Philistines, uh, in First Samuel four rethink what they're doing by going, "Oh man, I did not realize we're dealing with the God who who took out Egypt." The Egypt and delivered them oh man we don't have a chance and then as a testimony of the greatness of God to Israel and to their sons and to their sons sons forever well any uh, comments or thoughts or questions that you might have yes Anne you know Yahweh, was he still I mean, did they, they lived still for him and did, did you think they, they felt there was that he deserted them them and... yeah it, it appears in one way when you know Moses shows up and Aaron it seems they had some sense that they once had a God and their forefathers were Abraham Isaac and Jacob and hey he's here to deliver us but clearly, it's like, oh, he's, it's great, because we already have a bunch of other gods, and to have one more that's great, because we're going to get here very quickly. As soon as they get out of Egypt, Moses is gone for a little while, and they immediately build a calf. You know, it's like, hey, let's get somebody that we know and trust and familiar with. So they obviously worshipped uh, the, the calf, and that was the Egyptian, or the, the, the Hebrews God in Egypt. So, No, I I don't think they really knew much. Like I said, if you gave a quiz to anybody at the end of the book of Exodus, there wasn't very much they knew about God. You're talking about why are the laws later in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Yeah. And in you're later in the book, they show stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not 100% on your question, but your question is much bigger than you realize what you're asking. Okay, so when we look at the laws, number one, the, the religious leaders were to be the government. So you have a section on how a civil government under God is to be ran. But then you have laws for the priests on how God is to be worshiped. And then you have for the people what kinds of foods they're not to eat to separate themselves from the world. So you have the dietary laws. Okay, but then you have like the Ten Commandments and then many of the laws, which are moral laws. Those moral laws are the ones we see in the New Testament. So like in 1 Corinthians 5, where the guy married his stepmom, in the law, Paul goes right back to it and just says, Absolutely not. That's a sin. Well, how do we know? Because with the moral laws, God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, are we to have a, are we to set up our government the way the, the Israelites were to set up their government after they left Egypt? No, there's nowhere in the, so that even though we can look at the nature of God, okay, here's God's sense of justice and, and his sense of equity and his sense of how a government should run. If it's his instruction, then we should take that. And our, our country did. We're the only country that did. And um, and then when it comes to the ceremonial laws, each of them speak of Christ, okay? So how they were to worship, the priests were to worship, or how they were to cleanse themselves or sanctify themselves. Or to cleanse a leper who had been a leper and God did a miracle and healed him, but he still has to go through a cleansing. All of this speaks of Christ, you know. In the volume of the book, it's been written of me, it says in Hebrews. It's, everything's written of Jesus. Every page is is speaking of Jesus one way. But I, I was on that used to do for every man an answer and, and had a question. It's like, okay, if Jesus came back right now and said homosexuality is not a sin, would it then not be a sin? And it's like... There, there, there is no sin that is sin because God said it. Sin is sin because it's sin. God said it because he loves us and he's warning us. Okay, it's like if there's a big black barbecue, and my, kid, my little kid rides his tricycle around it all week, But now on Friday, I'm out there, and I'm barbecuing. I'm like, stay away from here. You know, Here's a bench. Stay over there. I don't want you to get burned. And kids looking at the black barbecue, you're nuts. And then after a while, he tiptoes over the bench, and he finally touches the black barbecue, and it burns him. And I realize it, and I'm trying to comfort him, and he just kicks me. He said, it wouldn't have burnt me if you didn't say it was hot. It's like, no. If I said nothing, it was going to burn him because... It's going to burn him because it's hot. I told him it's hot because I loved him. So the Bible doesn't say thou shall not poke your neighbor in the eye with a stick. But is it wrong? <laughs> is it a sin to poke somebody in the eye? It is. So, so we have all kinds of sins that exist that are not written in the Bible. Okay. So sin is not sin because it's in the Bible. It's sin because it's sin, because God's nature is pure. Anything less than purity is sin. But I, I'm getting off the thing. So again, the moral law stand. So that's why you see that Poor Paul says the law is good if one uses it rightfully. So when they try to take some of the law and say you got to get circumcised and all of this in and, and Acts 15, he's like, no, 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 no. We never kept any of that law ourselves. Th- throw that out. The law is not to make somebody righteous, it's just to show somebody you're sinful. But the moral law stands because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never gonna change uh, his mind on what's true. No, sometimes they, they sin against the the um, civil laws. Um, sometimes they sin against the ceremonial laws. You know, Nadab and Abihu, um, or no, who were the ones that got burnt in, in Leviticus 10? Yeah, yeah, that was right. They they had been drinking alcohol, evidently, and they had happy feet and they offered a sacrifice they shouldn't have offered and they got killed. So that was a ceremonial law that they broke. Um, And then there's just things that God gave laws, and they didn't understand why. Like when you go out to war, if you got to go number two, you first must dig a hole, and then after you go number two, you got to bury it. Why? Because the Lord your God is holy, and he walks amongst you. (laughs) We know it's just a good old way not to get disease to break out. But he didn't explain it to them. He's like, "This is one of the laws when you, a war law, when you go to war, you know. Instead of having three hundred thousand guys pooping all over and everybody stepping in it and getting, everybody getting diseases." So I, I think there's some very practical things in there as well. So we're, we'll be going through it. <laughs> we, we'll have we'll have an after class Pierre no. tutorial. No, those are good. It's okay, Pierre. It's good. we're in the Lord's timing and stuff. If you have another question, you think it's good. Okay. Okay. Just just don't pray your question later in the prayer time. <laughs> uh, well. We really come to to see once again, you know, I I, I know as Christians, we don't have a hard, hard, unbelieving heart as Pharaoh did. But we know that pride can come right in. You know, we think of the Laodicean church. They were full of pride, but they were shocked when God said they were full of pride. They had no idea. They thought they were God was blessing them. That's why they were so financially wealthy. And it was the very thing that was keeping them from really being spiritually where they needed to be. And there we had learned that term, lukewarm, where you neither know, hot nor cold, but everything's working out great earthwise. But he says, from my point of view, um, you guys are all enjoying the church there at Laodicea, but as for me, I'm outside. I can't even come in anymore. It's so grievous. And then he says, even to vomit you out of my mouth. Those are some really strong terms. But yet he just says, quickly repent. And of course, we want that true and godly repentance. And so I think as we read this story, we got to put ourselves and say, Lord, am I Pharaoh? Lord, am I a uh, Moses? Lord, am I following? you and understanding you as you wanted the children of Israel to understand you through this story? Am I realizing how mighty you are? And, and uh, the very end of First John ends the book by saying, little children, beware of idols. <laughs> all of a sudden, one day, you, you realize something in your house or something in your life has become an idol. It wasn't an idol a year ago, but now all of a sudden, it's an idol. Um, it's your master passion. And the passion from the Lord has disappeared or is much, much lower than it should be.